What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Who loved to lace up his boots, who loved the roar of the crowd, who battled with giants and titans that were larger than life. Yeah, that's my dad. Who said, everybody's got a price. Everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. And when it came to fame, he learned that, well, it's true. Ultimately, I always get what I want, and I always get my way, and eventually, I'll have it all. My wife, who was totally committed to me, my wife, who never called me anywhere in the world to check up on me, and now discovered that I was committing adultery. When I discovered that Ted had been cheating in our marriage, I had to hold it together for my children. In a lot of cases, uh, the price of fame is too costly. Dad, you've never said sorry to, to my face. There's nothing wrong with going and trying your hardest at anything you love but not for fame. Your dad is so not the same person he was. We don't even identify with the people we were. The one thing that kept me sane through all of this was my relationship with the Lord. And all I ever wanted when I was 15 years old was to make you proud. And now I think that I have. Following your footsteps again, you know, I wanted to be a wrestler. Now I want to be that kind of dad. And I want my son to be proud of me because of the man that I've become, the character and integrity that I exemplify. And the only reason I want that desire that is because that's the man you became. Everybody's got a price. The price of fame is high. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, 
brought to you today and powered by our appearance at the Big Event 13 in New York. This coming Saturday, November the 4th, head on out to East Elmhurst, New York for the Big Event 13 featuring the two-man power trip of wrestling teaming up with our good friends from that wrestling club and joined by Pete Gass of the Mean Street Posse and a very rare East Coast appearance of Kevin Thorne as Mordecai in full character and full gimmick this coming Saturday at the Big Event 13. Head on over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash TMPT of wrestling right now and find out how you can join the fun over at the Big Event 13 in East Elmhurst, New York at the LaGuardia Plaza Hotel. If you can't find it, it is right across the street from LaGuardia Airport. So get on over there this weekend if you have the time and join us at the Big Event 13. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I am usually joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, as they say in the business, is on assignment this week. So John will not be joining us for this intro as we welcome back a guest who we haven't had on in about two and a half years. And that is WWE Hall of Famer, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Now, I say we haven't had him on in two and a half years. In the early days of our show, right about, I'd say, June 2015, we had the opportunity to join in on an event in New Jersey, right on the beach in Seaside Heights. And we were able to have a couple guys on the show that day. We had our good buddy Justin Credible on the show. We had the late, great Balls Mahoney on. We had Jake the Snake Roberts on. And we also had on the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Now, as an Easter egg for today's episode, which is a pretty lengthy interview, I threw at the end of this episode our conversation with Ted DiBiase from that day. So stay tuned after the interview is over for today's episode for a little Easter egg of our interview with Ted from 2015. But Ted is back to talk about his brand new film, the documentary The Price of Fame, which is taking a very deep look into the life and career of Ted DiBiase, not only as the million dollar man, but also as a father, as a husband, and as a grandfather. And we kind of get to see how the story of Ted DiBiase shaped the million dollar man character, but as well really affected his personal life. And that is something that Ted literally gives no bones about in this interview. He throws everything out on the table and kind of gives you the inside look as to what the story is behind what a price of fame could be. And in this instance with Ted, it was almost losing his family. And he did everything he could to make sure that didn't happen. And now the price of fame is going to be coming your way nationwide in the United States. November 7th, it's getting a nationwide release and all the details are at thepriceoffame.com as well as facebook.com slash movie, where you can find out where the movie is being played and where you can find it in your neck of the woods so you can check out this film. And now John and I had an opportunity to view the film and it is a very good film. It features Ted's son, former WWE superstar Ted DiBiase Jr. and him kind of confronting his father over past indiscretions of Ted Sr. as Ted was living the life of a WWE superstar in the 1980s when obviously the decade of the 80s was filled with nothing but the best. Whether it was money, whether it was women, whether it was drugs, 
whether it was alcohol, whether it was partying, those guys in the 1980s reinvented what partying and what all that stuff was going to be all about. And again, Ted holds nothing back, not only in this interview, but also in the movie. But when it's the Million Dollar Man, I mean, how can you not go back down memory lane? We're able to talk about some of the things from his days as the Million Dollar Man, not just his career as himself, Ted DiBiase, but more specifically, the WWF Million Dollar Man gimmick, where it came from, how it kind of took shape, what happened in his career that made that character so impactful, but also his highlight as the Million Dollar Man, which was the WrestleMania Four Championship Tournament. In the film, he gets to actually get back into Boardwalk Hall in New Jersey where WrestleMania IV took place and really gives you the vibe of what was going through his head and what he felt as he would wrestle three times that night, of course, culminating in a main event loss to the Macho Man Randy Savage in what would be one of my personal favorite WrestleMania moments where the Macho Man wins the World Wrestling Federation Championship. But it goes to show what the WWF saw in Ted DiBiase as a singles competitor as he would go on to create his own heavyweight championship and become the million-dollar champion, which we all know that belt. It is quite possibly the most impressive championship belt that was ever created. And uh, we all recognize it when we see it. We all know that Ted DiBiase is the first, and he's now considered a multiple-time million-dollar champion. But come on, he's the million-dollar man. He's the million-dollar champ. And WrestleMania 4 was a direct result of that belt being created. So now as we talk a little bit more about the film, I don't want to give too much away because I really want people to go out and see it. Uh, Ted mentions in the episode how there's so much that's going to be available to them while this film is being marketed. And of course, they're talking to Netflix and they're talking to other streaming services. So if you don't get to see it while it's out in theaters, you will see it eventually because it will be available very, very soon. This is going to be one that wrestling fans need to check out and if you've ever read either of the books that are published about Ted DiBiase's life whether it was his first autobiography that he put out in 1997 or it was the WWE's autobiography that they put out I think about 10 years later uh, maybe about 2008-2009 you definitely you know some of his stories but now it's time to see it and it's time to live it with the million dollar man Ted DiBiase because there's a lot more to the price of fame than you would think So I don't want to take up too much more time. I want you to get into this interview as well as, like I said, the Easter egg that we threw on the end there. Now, I just want to caution you about that. It was very loud outside that day, so the audio was a little messed up. So your boy Chad here had to do a little bit of tinkering just to make it uh, sound a little bit more, uh, I don't know, uh, pleasurable to the listening audience, but he covered a few topics that we didn't get to in this interview. That's why I wanted to throw it on here uh, so you could at least hear a couple more topics that didn't get discussed in this interview. And hey, it was back in our early days, so we don't know how many people were listening back then. So if you get a chance to uh, to enjoy it, we appreciate that. And of course, we appreciate everybody. And before I get it over to the Million Dollar Man, I want to personally thank everybody who has made the Triple Threat Podcast a success as we have moved it over to our iTunes platform and over to Podomatic.com and Podbean and Player FM and all the places that you get this podcast from. We want to thank you very, very much for the response and all of the emails that we've gotten that are giving us props about the show as well as sending in questions. And I hope you you really enjoy what we're throwing out there because Shane absolutely loves it. 
and John and I love doing it. So the the more the better. So thank you very much for all the positive comments and for making it such a success. Just a couple weeks in here. So this is kind of the new schedule we're going on. You're going to get one triple threat podcast early in the week, and then you're going to get these classic TMPT interviews to close out your week and head you into your weekend such as today's with the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. And again, if you're looking for something to do this weekend, get on out to the Big Event 13 at the LaGuardia Plaza in East Elmhurst, New York. Join John, our buddy Mike from that wrestling club, Kevin Thorne as Mordecai, and the Mean Street Posse's Pete Gas for a day of meet and greets, photo opportunities, and a hell of a lot of fun at the Big Event 13 and get into this episode here now as the music starts to creep in. You're going to hear John throw it over to the Million Dollar Man. We thank you so much for joining us. And let's get this show on the road to the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 1125 with Arn Anderson and Telly Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, the subject of the Price of Fame documentary. Everybody's got a price. He is the former million-dollar champion. He's a former three-time WWE World Tag Team Champion. And of course, he is a WWE Hall of Famer. He is the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Please enjoy. Everybody's got a price. Everybody's gonna pay. Cause the million dollar man always gets his way. <laughs> money, 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 money. 
cost a little. Some might cost a lot. But I'm the million dollar man. And you will be bought. <laughs> like a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> How apropos. Well, joining us on the line tonight is somebody who in the professional wrestling industry is one of the more timeless and recognizable personalities. If you don't know him by his trademark laugh, you know him by having one of the most memorable nicknames of all time. But that just goes without saying that his resume has championships from nearly every territory you could possibly think of. But we're going to focus here right now on the fact he is a WWE Hall of Famer. He is a multiple-time WWF Tag Team Champion. And, of course, he is the inaugural, and we will always know him as, the Million Dollar Champion. He told us everybody has a price, but we're going to find out tonight just exactly what is the price of fame as the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, joins the two-man power trip. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Thanks, guys, for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, we are so pumped to have you, Ted. We were able to in- interview you very, very briefly a couple years back at an outdoor event on the Jersey Shore. It was a beautiful day. It was a nice chat. Dusty Rose had just passed away, so that was the untimely part of our conversation. But at the time, I believe the price of fame was kind of in development. So, obviously, first things first, how did the price of fame movie come about? And kind of tell us how this whole story has been able to kind of now hit the movie screen in a very big way. It's it's a pretty phenomenal story. I mean, uh, you know, I've been telling my story as a minister uh, for 17 years, actually longer than that. Uh, I wrote a book. Uh, my first book was Every Man Has a Price, and uh, it, it was basically the story that I tell. Um, but I don't know, six or seven years ago, I came into the New York area, and Peter Fierro, who directed this, and edited it, put it together. Pete approached me as he says, "I'm doing a favor for a friend who wants an interview from you." It was like what they, you know, we call a shoot interview. So shoot interview meaning we're not talking wrestling storylines; we're talking real life. So when you start talking to me about my real life, I'm going to start telling you about what I believe God has done in my life. And so as I'm telling the story, uh, in Pete's own words, he said, "You know, I'm at the time." the somewhat backslidden son of a minister. His his dad is a minister, and I had no idea of that. And apparently my story resonated with Pete, uh, and it helped Pete you know, turn his life back around. And so after that, you know, any time that I might be coming to the New York area and speaking somewhere, he would come out and see me and uh, hear me share that story again. And finally he came to me one day and he said, look, he said, you know what? He says, I know you tell your story, and I know you've written a book about it. He says, I'd like to put it in film. 
and I, you know, I, I okay, and that's what I knew Pete did, you know, wedding photography and video, so he documents weddings, but this is like more like a movie piece, and uh, I said, well, okay, you know, if I'll, I'll be your guinea pig, you know, if you want to tell the story, great. I never envisioned what's happened. Uh, I mean. I never in my wildest dream thought it would go to the lengths that it's gone, uh, that it would take as much time as it as it took to put it together, and then to watch it and realize what a phenomenal job I believe Pete did. Um, I mean, there's so many of my contemporaries uh, in, in this that were interviewed, including a couple who have passed, Georgie Animal Steel, Roddy Piper, no longer with us, uh, but Terry Funk and... Uh, you know, Harley Race, I mean, Lex Luger, gosh, you know, Gene Okerlund, uh, so many guys, so many guys were interviewed in this. And so when I sat down and I watched my own story for the first time, it brought me to tears. And, um, uh, but the, the process uh, was, was, a, was a long one. Uh, I know Pete said to me, he said, "I want to." He says, I, "I hear you talk about when you were young, and you know your your dad had died, and your mom had sunk sank into alcoholism, and you're in this little town, and you would go out to the desert cemetery where your father's buried, and you would pray and uh, seek counsel." He says, "I want you, to, you know, I want to go to Wilcox. I want to film Wilcox, and I want you to take me to that place." And and so we, we go out to Wilcox. Well, my son Ted Jr. He comes along, and and Pete will tell you this is funny. You know, you know, my my son is very protective of his dad, and he's like, you know, he wasn't so sure about Pete. He says, I wasn't sure whether I was gonna like him or beat him up. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> thought somebody was taking taking advantage of his dad, right? And so, so he sees Wilcox for the first time, and he's like, Dad, what did you do here? It's like, it took like ten minutes to see the entire town. And I said exactly, and. So uh, we, when we went out to the cemetery, he said, I want to go like you went at night. Well, Pete really shut me up. I mean, I thought, well, you know, okay, we're going to go out there, and he's going to interview me in, in, in this setting. And we get out there, and he says, Ted, he says, here's, here's, here's where I want you to go, man. He said, I want, you to, I want you to think as if you haven't been here in a long time. And I said, the truth is I haven't been here in a very long time. And I said, he said, but I'm saying you haven't been here since you left, like, high school, college, and, and all these things have happened in your life, and you're coming back to visit your dad for the first time. And oh my gosh, I mean, so I start talking to my dad uh, like I did when I was in high school, and the tears just start coming, and it's just like you know. And I told Pete later, I said, boy, you really set me up for that, um, and. Uh, but it was real. It was organic, uh, and it was it was it was heartfelt. Um, so we, you know, we put this thing together. It was like a, a, a three year process. I mean, with a lot of setbacks and and uh, uh, what have you. But now it's done. And then, uh, you know, my son, you know, Ted Junior had, you know, he's, you know, he was with the WWE for five years. He was rocking. Did a movie, uh, you know, The Marine Two. Uh, got got a lot of accolades for that, and he's met a lot of people. And so he comes along, and, and again, he interjects this. He said, "Dad, he says, how about we tell your story? It's your story. It's mom's story. It's our story. But how about we tell it like seen through my eyes?" And I went, "Wow, you know, because I speak a lot." 
and I do a lot of speaking to men. I, I talk about the significance of, 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 of having a wonderful dad in your life and how important it is. And uh, so I said, okay. And uh, so that's what we do. Well, when we complete this project, my son told me, he said, Dad, he says, I, I, you know, I know the guys, you know, the, the marketing people who have marketed some of the biggest faith-based movies in the country, God's Not Dead, God's Not Dead 2, Fireproof, Blindside. He said, I'm sending them the documentary. And he said, uh, he says, I got a message back that they would get back to me after Christmas. Well, this is like, you know, a week before Christmas. And he calls me the next day and he said, Dad, they called me back today. And he, they said, we love this and we want to help you get it out there. So, all of a sudden, this project goes to, oh my gosh, um, it's going to be a fathom event. Fathom meaning, you know, uh, it's going to be seen between 650 to 700 theaters across the United States for a one-night showing. And apparently, if it does really well, they could even do an encore event. And so this thing has turned into something much bigger than 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 I had ever envisioned, and it was it was just it happened organically, and uh, um, so that's what we're looking at now. I mean, we we already have people, I mean, significant people that want to distribute the DVDs, and you know, uh, uh, Netflix is interested, and it's like okay, I mean, I mean, I, I was even told that uh, they they were getting a lot of calls from Canada to see if possibly. You know they could do a fathom event in Canada because I've spoken all over Canada over the past uh, you know ten or twelve years, and so I don't know. This thing is like kind of taking on a life of its own, um, and uh, it's just you know. And now here we are a week away, and I mean I'm, you know, you guys happen to be my last interview for today anyway, <laughs> and I, you know, and 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 I can still talk. <laughs> And what we like to do is we like to be the best interview of the day. And I'll tell you what, and the movie does release on November 7th, so being a week away, November 7th is going to be the, uh, the nationwide drop of what you've been talking about. And it's the price of fame, but, you know, it, it's called a documentary, but just being able to, to view it and see that, to me, it came off as so much more than just a documentary. Like you said, it's a story. It's your whole life. It's like it's this deep, compelling look into not just – your faith, not just your family, not just the upbringing, not just the stories of your father, not just your career. It's this all-encompassing look into your world. And to me, it's like an exploration uh, of everything. And a couple things I just wanted to dial back to and what you had mentioned. Your book, when it came out in 1997, and I know, John, we're the same age, we were, everybody was looking for that book because nobody wrote a wrestling book at that point. And to get our hands on it and read your story then was interesting enough and now to see this film now it's like it's wrapping this nice package up for all the fans but it's the story of you and your dad iron mike dibiase your stepdad what an absolutely fascinating story the 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 tragic death how it impacted you how your career got started when you're able to get that all out there to the world and everybody's heard about your stepdad but now for everybody to, to see your reaction to this how did that feel to tell that story in the film and get that story out to the masses and find out more about um, your stepdad, Iron Mike DiBiase? Uh, uh, well, you know, it, you know, it 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 really is is it's pleasing uh, because I, you know, he did mean so much to me, and that, and again, that's one of the things that compels me today is is that. Um, it's kind of like you know, uh, you know, there's there's you know, there's a lot of good stuff. You know, it's like I wanted people to see, 
you know, I got even Pete said it. Even my son says, said, Dad, they, you know, I could tell he he tell he went there. He said, this you lived here. You lived in this little town with three traffic lights. And he said, you came out of here and you and you played college football and 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 you went on to be a, a really big star. That's that's something. That's significant. And I said, well, okay. You know, I said, but you know, I mean. Uh, yeah, there's good, but there's you know, there's 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 the bad that comes along with the good, and uh, you got to tell the whole story. And um, you know, I you know when I when I the way I when I got to college, uh, you know when, when my father died and my mom, mom started drinking, uh, I was pretty scared. I was like, what's going to happen to us? And, you know, I, I was living with my grandmother, and that, so I it wasn't fearful in terms of oh, we're going to be on the street, but I was still scared. Uh, but when when things started going good and the, and the, uh, the scholarship comes and I go to college and you know now I'm not scared anymore. Then it's like, you know, uh, the way I put it is you know the pride of life stepped in and, and 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 Ted's ego goes into overdrive and for the next 20 years that's what I'm driven by. And uh, it's okay to want to be successful. It's okay to be, you know, to want to do well. But uh, it's you know like it has a price. And 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 again when I say the price of fame, guys. It's what you make it. Uh, it's you know what you do with the you know it's like any given situation, and uh, you know I made some good choices and then I made some really horrible choices that nearly cost me the things that are truly dear to me, and that's that's what I mean. If there's anything I want people to come away from this understanding, I, you know, I, I want young people, um, you know, that maybe feel like they're in a hopeless situation. Though there is hope, you know, if you're willing to work hard. You can you can rise above it, and you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, you know, I want I want young men uh, to know. To, I want young fathers to know how important it is, uh, and how much a father figure meant to me. Uh, that that my dad's impression upon me, uh, and knowing about you know, and he never bragged about his amateur career and what he did at Nebraska and all those things. I found that out from other people. Uh, but what he did say to me was, he said, son, he says, it's easy. It's easy to follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. Don't do what everybody else is doing just because they're doing it. That doesn't take any courage. He said, I want you to be a leader, not a follower. You know, uh, be the head, not the tail. And he said, if you work hard, you can be anything you want to be. I never forgot that. And so he dies, and I end up in Wilcox, and, you know, all through high school, in this little bitty town where there's nothing to do. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs. I mean, we're talking about the late 60s and the early 70s, and, you know, marijuana and, and uh, acid were were a big thing. And, you know, it wasn't until I actually, till the, the, the second semester of my senior year, after I had signed the scholarship to go to West Texas State over the, over the University of Arizona because of the influence of the Funk family, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I went out with a buddy of mine, and he said, hey, let's, let's celebrate and have a couple of glasses of wine. I had three glasses of wine and was drunk the very first time. And But then I go to, I, I, when I went to West Texas State, you know, the, the fear is gone, and the pride set in, and, and, and down the, down the, you know, down the dusty road I went. Um, uh, I did a lot, I made a lot of good choices, but I made some choices that could have, ended very tragically for my family and you know that that's the other thing is that you know uh when it came to doing this film up until that time my boys didn't what they knew what they knew is what they heard me speak from the pulpit 
So they'd heard the story, and they knew that there had been, you know, the trouble in the marriage, and that obviously we worked it out. And I told my wife, and my back to my wife. My wife said, as it happened, she said, "These boys hold you on a pedestal. You're a good dad, in spite of what you've done to me. So they don't know about this until they're old enough to understand it, which was wisdom." And so that's where they heard it was as I would share it in church. And I said, if they need to know any more, they'll come and ask. And that didn't happen until we did this documentary. And I don't even, I'm not even sure my son realized, realized it when he said, let's tell it through, through my eyes. And then again, by this time, both Ted Jr. and my younger son, Brett are married and they have their own sons. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, again, three years ago, I mean, my youngest grandchild, Brett's little boy, was was born. Uh, well, he's almost four, so he's a brand new daddy. But nonetheless, now my boys are 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 married, and they love their wives, and they have children, and they're going, "Wow, I, I love my ch- my child so much." And it's like, then it's they look at dad and go. Dad, how could you do? How could you do this? I mean, you know, how could you do this to mom? You know, and that's hard. And uh, and and I, you know, I was as transparent as I could possibly be. It's like being two different people. It's like it's it's filling a void because uh, if you don't put the safeguards in your life, fame it can 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 draw you away. You know, people go, "Wow, it's so cool to be famous." You know, you walk out into a coliseum and there's twenty thousand people and they're all screaming your name and. And I go, yeah, but when that show's over, you go back to your hotel and you eat dinner, and then you go sit in the hotel room with the television and four walls, and your family's 200 or 2,000 miles away. It doesn't matter what, they're not there. And then you do that for 300 nights in a year's time, and then you do it again. And that hotel room gets to be a very lonely place. And so you saunter on down to the bar to have a beer and, and, and socialize with the guys, and down the dusty road you go. If you don't put the safeguards in your life, and in uh, and you put uh, uh, accountability into your life, and I, I was I was drawn away, and I just told my boys, I said, you know, it's like it's like living two different lives. It's like I'm I'm one person at home, and 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 I'm out here filling this void, and I you know uh, in, in in any in any direction you go, you make excuses for it, but then when that went, but then when the you know. You know, uh, what the Bible says is whatever's done in the darkness will be revealed in the light. It's not a question of if, just a question of when. And when it was, and on that day where I said to my wife, you know, I called home and she confronts me with adultery. I mean, boom, cat's out of the bag. Um, I don't want to talk about it on the phone. I'll be able to explain home. She said, no, you won't. You don't live here anymore. Click. Oh, my gosh. In a fraction of a second, I realized that I had put at risk the most valuable thing in my life, the love and devotion of a committed wife, as well as the future, the stability, the peace of mind and the well-being of my children, whom I love so much. And why did I do that? Was I unhappy at home? No. I, I loved my family. I was on this ego trip. And it just doesn't get any uglier than that, guys. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, and it's not an unfamiliar story. It's just you get drawn away. Um, 
and again, the price of fame can be high. And it's and you know, it's not that way with everybody. It's been that way with a lot of people. But I, you know, it's like I tell young guys today: if you if you make yourself accountable, and you if you put up the safety nets where where they should be, you can avoid it. But you know, bottom line is, you are what you behold. And uh, you know, the, you know, like if if you want to if you want to quit drinking, stay out of the bar. And um, and eventually, when I did turn around, uh, which was this all, all started in '92. Uh, by the summer of '93, uh, SummerSlam '93 is the last time I wrestled uh, for the WWF. Uh, res- wrestled Razor Ramon at SummerSlam. And I realized I, I, I needed to leave. Not, I wasn't unhappy with the company or anything else. I just realized that, you know, so many things had changed. My, my attitude about everything had changed. But what I was doing now was putting my family ahead of my career. And I said, you know what? I, you know, I, I can't stay in this atmosphere right now. I need to separate myself from it. And and so I left the WWF and I went back to wrestling in Japan and that only lasted a couple of months because uh, I herniate two discs in my neck. Actually, it's it was degenerative, is what the doctor said. It finally manifested itself after taking bumps for 19 years. Um, you know, I had worn out the two two discs in my neck, and that was the end of the the the, the, actual, the active wrestling career and everything else kind of. Um, you know, I didn't tell the story for a long time. It, it, you know, it was the healing process was at least a couple of years. I mean, um, trying to prove myself, and, and um, but as my wife began to see the priorities in my life change, those the, those things came back. The the trust came back, and the the closeness came back, and uh, it wasn't easy, but it was definitely worth it. Such an amazing film, but such an amazing career on top of that. And do you think playing that Million Dollar Man gimmick, which is arguably one of the greatest gimmicks ever, and it's a gimmick that I guess Pat Patterson had mentioned to you that Vince would have wanted to play that gimmick if he were a wrestler, did that kind of get in your head and really contribute to that ego trip that you were going on? Uh, it it might have helped, uh, but I, I think that any you know uh, there were a lot of other guys with me on the road, and a lot of the other guys hanging out in the bar with me, and a lot of the other guys doing similar things, who didn't have that gimmick. And um, I just think it, it it's just that wrestling had gone from um, pretty much blue collar crowd form of entertainment done on a regional basis, where a few people knew who you were, and and you. You did your shows in in, in in television studios with a your crowd was uh, you know two sets of bleachers and and that was it to this to this I mean you go from that to almost like rock stars traveling literally all over the country and then internationally and and then you know not everybody but then, then that you know Vince goes okay we're going to make the public we're going to try to make the public believe you're the guy so now. I'm not only traveling all over the world, I'm traveling first class. I'm having limousine service all the time and, and all that goes along with that. So, yeah, that that, that, that could easily go to your head. Uh, and, again, um, it's, it's how grounded are you. And I just wasn't grounded enough. And I had, in so many ways, without realizing them, because I didn't have a father figure in my life anymore after the age of 15. There's a lot of things I think that, would have been avoided. And I, mean, I mean, I'll be honest with you. My dad, the last thing he wanted me to be was a wrestler. 
And that wasn't because he didn't enjoy what he did, but again, uh, you know, uh, even in his time, it was a similar lifestyle, and and you know the the dangers were quite the same. So, but not to the degree that we found him. And uh, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm thankful to God uh, that I made it through, and I'm thankful to my wife for for giving me a chance I didn't deserve. Absolutely, and I feel like with your career, everyone seems to, you know, they always think about the million-dollar man and, like, you know, the, the good times. You know, they think about the, the, the crazy character, the suit, the money, the persona, even the million-dollar belt, even uh, Virgil. But a lot of people don't think about behind the scenes and what's really going on, what's affecting these wrestlers that, you know, you don't see in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and, uh, and again, uh, you know, there's no blame here put in me. It's like it's not the WWE, it's not it's not the NFL, it's, you know. And to the WWE's credit, I mean, the the uh, the accountability that they've that they've got now. I mean, again, everything grows and it changes. I know that uh, prior to my coming, well, by the time I came on board, just after WrestleMania three, the guys had started doing three weeks on the road and a week off. And then they changed that because they realized that's still too long away from home for for married guys. They did ten. The, the long tour was ten days, and then you'd go home for three, and then you'd go back for four, and then you go home for three, and then you you did you do ten again. But anyway, you look at it, you're still only home six days a month, and uh, it's not a lot. But you know, then they started impl- implementing the drug testing, and you know, at first the drug testing was done by the you know the the agents and but now today i mean i remember my son telling me he said dad he said you know now he said if if i get a cold or, or something and i go to the doctor and they prescribe uh an antibiotic as soon as i i leave there i have to call the wwe doctor and tell them what they've prescribed and why and he says because if i don't and they test me and it shows up in my blood and i haven't told them about it then I'm docked. Then I'm taking a 30-day vacation, and so you know the the drug testing is is you know state of the art now, and uh, and that's that's accountability. You know that you know it's not just for steroids, but it's it's for you know all the recreational drugs and the whole the whole nine yards. So there's accountability built in there now that uh, that wasn't at the time. And again, I you know, I, I pass that off to a lot of times that's growing pains. I mean, you could look at the NFL or anybody else and. You know, like that whole thing uh, where, the, where they were trying to, you know, the feds were trying to say that Vince McMahon was buying the steroids for his athletes and encouraging them to take them, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, I mean, they they proved it in court, and I mean, I mean, I I heard him say it. You know, he said, you don't need that crap. You know, he says you ever you ever he say he said you, you ever seen those those. Uh, those documentaries about guys in prison, you see all those guys in the prison yard out there lifting weights and, you know, they, you know, they got these great big physiques. I said, they're not getting steroids in there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and to Vince's credit, you know, he, you know, nobody works harder than he does, man. The guy's 73 years old and I think he could still be on muscle and fitness magazine. Oh yeah. He's still uh, looking in, in great shape. And you mentioned those long trips and not, you know, only really being home six days out of the month. I just had to uh, bring up Mid-South because I know in Mid-South you had those really long trips and you'd really be, 
you know, kind of away from your family and kind of away from everybody for a while just because of the distance. What was it like uh, down there in Mid-South, obviously, with uh, Cowboy Bill Watts and the, the many, many stars like JYD and, and Jim Duggan that were down there at that time? Well, Mid-South, I mean, you know, I tell you, I, 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 I give Mid I give Bill uh, Watts credit more than anybody in my career for what I know about the wrestling industry. In my opinion, there's not there's not a guy sharper in terms of his his understanding of the psychology of what we do. And um, now, I, I granted, you know, Mid South was four states: Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and yeah, we had some long trips, but. You know, and and we, yeah, yeah, and there were days when we had to stay over, but we were never, I mean, we were never like away from home where we're just totally gone for like a whole week. I mean, you might be gone a day, you might be gone two. At the most, I'd say maybe three before you could get back to wherever your base was, wherever you were staying. Now, you might still be wrestling every night, and we did, we did, we wrestled every night, but at least you, you know, you had the day at home and you were, you know, you were around your family. You know, once you know, once the WWF thing, it's like when you leave, you're 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 gone. You're not back home for three weeks. You're not back home for ten days. Uh, Mid South was not like that. I mean, you're driving your own car. You know, and you basically, if, if you wanted to, you know, uh, you could go home every night if if you wanted. It didn't make sense, but you could if you if you wanted to. And we recently just talked to Jerry Stubbs, who who had some uh, very very nice things to say about you. So there's a little blast from the past. Uh, yeah, Jerry's a great guy. Now, down there in, in Mid-South, I just had to mention, obviously, the feud with JYD, which was once upon a time feud of the year in the early 80s. And, again, you had another feud of the year in Mid-South with Jim Duggan. Are those some of your fondest memories in the business? Was it those two huge feuds that kind of put you on the map, if you will, in the wrestling business? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the first major main event of, of my life, I wrestled Harley Race at the Keel Auditorium, St. Louis, and I can't remember exactly, I can't remember what year that was, but uh, it was the first major main event, world championship match, sellout crowd. Um, St. Louis was like a hub. If you if you got recognized in St. Louis, everybody was going to hear about you. And, you know, it was kind of like, look out for this kid, here he, he comes, he's got a future. And uh, But, yeah, Mid-South and me turning heel, you know, um, was huge. It was a, a big step, and and uh, uh, you know I went on from there. I went to I went to Georgia and was a heel there, and then I came back, uh, and I stayed a heel until until Bill Watts turned me babyface again, and I was, I teamed up with Steve Williams uh, there the the last little bit of my run and in, in Mid South before going to uh, the WWF and becoming the Million Dollar Man. But yeah, I mean that that I mean it set the stage for me because I really believe that. Vince brought me in as this heel because he saw the kind of heel I had been. In other words, I was, you know, I was the kind of heel. Even though you didn't call me the Million Dollar Man, I talked down to the crowd. I was the, uh, I was the heel who talked real big. I, I'd show you I could wrestle, but when, when somebody would actually confront me, you know, you become the coward, the bully. I'm a bully. And you never you, you never get tired of seeing a bully get his butt kicked. <laughs> and hmm. the JBL JBL is the cowboy version of me. You know, talks real big, and then somebody confronts him, and he goes, "Oh yeah, maybe not now." And then you know, or and then takes the the cheap shots. 
in 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 our you know in in the dialogue we we call him the in you know wrestling terminology the best heel is the chicken shit heel because <laughs> you never <laughs> tire of him getting his butt kicked. Yeah, and at that point in WWF, there were so many good you know faces to go up against you, you know, like a Hogan or like a Macho Man. So it was almost perfect timing. Obviously, you know, they kind of team you with Andre a little bit as well. But it's almost perfect timing for that main event level heel to come in and be able to feud with a Hogan or a Savage. Yeah, I, I mean, initially, um, um, like the whole setup for WrestleMania four uh, was brilliant. The the you know the rematch with Hogan and Andre from WrestleMania three, first time wrestling's on live network television since the 1950s. The story is Hogan and Andre, but the the sub-story is me purchasing Andre to beat Hogan, and, and, and he's going to sell me the belt, which was the setup for WrestleMania four. Initially at WrestleMania four, it was thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way for Ted to, you know, buy, buy the title or, you know, somehow screw Hogan out of it or whoever out of it. And, uh, but then it was Pat Patterson who said to me, he said, Ted, he says, think about this for a minute. He said, let's say you don't win at WrestleMania 4. He says, because in reality, the way we're pushing you, that's what everybody expects to happen. And uh, he says, let's say it backfires on you. And in your arrogance, you create your own title. And as soon as he said it, I went, that is brilliant. I mean, that'll put a... So now I'm going to have this, you know, like the, the, the million-dollar belt, and I'm going to parade this belt around and declare myself the champion, and nothing could have put more heat on me. And it was, it really was a stroke of genius, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, and, I, you know, and I tell people, they go, aren't you sad that you were never the world champion? And I said, oh, well, it would, it would have been nice. I said, but reality is, I mean, wrestling's a business, and, 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 and titles are props. They're a prop, you know. Some guys need a prop, other guys don't, you know. So I didn't need the world title to get over and be a major heel. No, absolutely. And, of course, you know, the million-dollar belt would come eventually. And before I just want to – I know we're running out of time. Before we get to the big wrap for the film, you just mentioned it very briefly, the Market Square Arena, the main event, quite possibly the biggest audience to ever watch professional wrestling on network television we talked to Earl Hebner earlier this year, and obviously I think you know where I'm going to go with this. He recalled the flight he took from the hands of Hulk Hogan <laughs> into the aisle of the Market Square Arena. So I asked him what was going through his head as he was in flight. Ted, what was going through your head as you saw Earl Hebner clearly sailing over the head of you, Virgil, and even Andre the Giant? Oh, I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was just like, I was like. You know, I was just, I was just hoping that, I was just hoping and praying that, you know, that he didn't get hurt seriously. I mean, I think we were all, all in shock because, I mean, he, he did give him a heave ho. I mean, he, and of course, Andre's, you know, a whole foot taller than me with his arms, even with his arms outstretched, he, he missed him. <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, uh, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty scary moment. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, Earl's lucky he didn't get hurt worse because, I mean, it's like. You know, uh, the the uh, from the floor to the ring apron, I think it's like three feet, and then you got Hogan who's standing in the ring, you know, and he's what was six six, and then he's holding Earl over his head, 
So, I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> what is he, 12 feet off the ground, 15 feet off the ground? Unbelievable. It's a miracle. He only tore his rotator cuff, which I'm sure for yeah. a referee is pretty vital uh, when you have to count one, two, three every <laughs> night. But that was also his first night working in the company. And to be on that stage, to take that flight that he did, obviously you would have that belt for a couple of days. And that was another thing, just like I said before, trying to track down your book in 1997. When we heard there were actually shows that were in existence where you were announced as the WWF champion, I could speak for tape traders and wrestling nerds out there that we had to get our hands on those tapes as well just to see it, to believe it, because you actually were announced for about, I would say, what, two or three shows as the WWF yeah. champion. Right, that's that's correct. <laughs> yes, that is correct. And in big markets, we have Boston, Boston and Philly, maybe one other one, but still, you had that belt, and uh, even though Andre surrendered it, you did wear it uh, with pride for at least uh, a handful of shows. <laughs> exactly. It was a brilliant. It was a brilliant angle. It really was. It's one of the best, and when you can see in the film as you relive. Not just that, but moving into uh, Boardwalk Hall, WrestleMania 4, it's unbelievable. The, the stories of you and your son and all the memories of your father and everything in between. The Price of Fame, November 7th, is opening nationwide. And obviously you can go to the website for The Price of Fame, which is thepriceoffame.com. You can go to facebook.com slash priceoffamemovie. You can find The Million Dollar Man on Twitter, which is at MDM Ted DiBiase. And Ted, the way we love... To end these, these interviews, before we give you the last little pitch here for the movie, when people start thinking about The Million Dollar Man and when the book is closed, what do you want professional wrestling fans to remember about Ted DiBiase? That everybody's got a price for The Million Dollar Man. <laughs> I just had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't find any better way to end it. And The Price of Fame is coming your way November 7th. Mr. DiBiase, it's been our pleasure, and hopefully everybody gets out and gets to see this film and enjoy your life, your story, and everything that you've done in between. And we thank you so much for joining us again. This has been just an absolute blast. Well, guys, th I thank you, and thank you for helping me uh, spread the word and get the word out there. And, and again, I I've always said this. I think wrestling fans are the greatest fans in the world because they're just extremely loyal. And uh, you know, and I hope that a lot of the fans get a chance to come out and uh and, and see this story, and, and hopefully they can take away something of value from it. And again, guys, thank you very much. Virtual's out cold. We need some help down there. Never, never mess with me.
when they're unconscious. Here is a man who needs literally no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's the WWE Hall of Famer, the legendary million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, right, it's great to be with you, man. Now, it's a beautiful day. We're here on the beach in Seaside Heights, New Jersey at the Beachcomber, and looking around the room, I see Jake the Snake Roberts. I see Superfly Jimmy Snuka. I see so many WWE legends. And you've had some great matches with, but I want to just kind of ask you about Mid-South, because that was my main thing I wanted to ask you about. I want to talk about, you had Jake, Hacksaw as well. What are your, your fondest memories of Mid-South and, and working with these guys in the room? Well, Mid-South is actually where I started the whole career. The owner, the guy who is, was Mid-South wrestling was Cowboy Bill Watts. Bill Watts was, is, an extremely intelligent guy. Un unbelievable understanding of the psychology of our industry. And I probably learned more from him than just about anybody. Just like the man, all the guys that you just named came out of Mid-South. They didn't just come out and were, were wrestlers. They were superstars. And uh, so some of my fondest moments are Mid-South. I guess I, I never got a chance to wrestle with Jake in Mid-South. Hmm. Uh, but my, I guess my biggest move I made is when I finally turned from good guy to bad guy on Junk Junker Dog. JYD and I had a tremendous run. And of course then, you know, me and Duggan, we, you know, we had the rat back, me and Duggan and Born and, and then uh, and, and then Duggan becomes a, a baby face and I had a great run with Axel even there before we got here. So uh, but yeah, well, JYD was probably the, because that was the, that was the thing that started me down the road to being an accomplished deal. Yeah, without a doubt. And you can't, you can't have, as you mentioned Hacksaw, the Loser Leaves Town match. Oh, Unbelievable. It was like, it was the gimmick matches of all gimmick matches. It was like every gimmick match you can think of in one. Now let me run it down for you. We, well, number one, we were dressed in tuxedos with this. I don't know where that came from. But inside a steel cage, and then there was a 12-foot pole attached to the one of the ring uh, posts, and then the top of the pole was a coal miner. So anybody who got to the top of the pole got the loaded coal miner's well, got the user. And then on top of that, user moved down. <laughs> you can't get enough. Maybe, oh maybe it predates a lot of the gimmick matches that we see today, where they try to pull out everything but the kitchen sink. I don't know, but it was for the day. I mean, you know, and, and when you talk about running big venues, I mean, obviously the WWE has you know, sold out all these venues you know, all over the world. Every year since like WrestleMania sets a new record in the building. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, but obviously. With WWE, you know, that's the square yard and the thing. But the first guy to run a dome was Bill Watt, and he ran the Superdome. Obviously, he didn't sell it out, but that was probably the largest crowd. And I don't, I don't have any other spots, but it was the largest crowd that I would have been from at that time. Yeah, and you can't deny the fact that Bill Watts and Mid South definitely place their stamp on the history and WWE appreciates that by putting out the Mid-South DVD. I think all the diehards were waiting for that after they acquired the Bill Watts UWF library. But now talking about just looking at Jake the Snake and we talked to him about WrestleMania 6. He said you were not fond of Damien and the belt was in the bag. What are your memories of WrestleMania 6 at the Sky Dome? Well, you know, I love wrestling Jake all the time because it was easy. Uh, 
you know, it's kind of like we, as wrestlers call it, we're doing the dance, and, and Jake and I dance well together. The chemistry is good. When you're on the same wavelength, and you share the same psychology of what a match should be, and we had that. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, like, uh, actually, I mean, you know, I was the heel, Jake was the baby face, and I think was one of the WrestleMania were actually won, but the only reason I won was because we went beyond after, after post WrestleMania. We we had a we had a run where uh, it, was, it was he and I all, all the time. I really enjoyed really enjoyed that. Event. Yeah, WrestleMania six. Uh, I would have to say it's my favorite WrestleMania. Now, you know, my first one, uh, WrestleMania four, the tournament, player champion you know, down here in Atlantic. Um, the last match with Randy Savage, we had a very good match as well. Lucky working with Randy. Uh, you know, but Jake's just one of those guys. Again, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I'm here, I'm here today with, with two guys that I absolutely love working with. Dog and Jake. That's great. And you also had Hacks on the first round of WrestleMania 4. Absolutely. So that was, uh, you know, all the smart fans definitely loved that little tie into Mid-South. But before we let you go... We had the passing, unfortunately, of American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, earlier this week. What are your memories of working with Dusty? You had a, a very memorable feud with him, Sweet Sapphire, SummerSlam, the unveiling of Sapphire Turn on Dusty. But what are your thoughts on working with Dusty all the years you did? Well, I posted it on Twitter. I said, you know, yesterday wrestling, an unbelievable wrestler and incredible entertainer, but I lost a close call. Uh, my relationship with Dusty goes all the way back to the beginning of not only read my career, but I went to West Texas State. Again, I'm one of many guys like Dusty. Another guy that was here today, I played, I was on the Tito Santana and I were on football game. Me, Tito, and Kelly Blanchard. A lot of wrestlers came out of West Texas State. But I actually met Dusty at Big Murdoch's house in Amarillo, Texas. Michelle, his wife, 
and the boys, and I know how close I am to my boys. It's a terrible loss, but thank you so much for joining us, Ted. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.